Section 9 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Part 1. Old John Sprague launched into his narrative with evident zest. I hung around Greaves' store most of two days, and I heard a heap. Some of it was just plain old men's gab, but I reckon I got the drift of things concerning Grass Valley. Yesterday morning, I was packing my burrows in Greaves' backyard, taking my time carrying out supplies from the store. And at last, when I went in, I seen a strange fella was there. Strapping young man, not so young either, and he had on buckskin. Hair as black as my burrows, dark face, sharp eyes. You took him for an Indian. He carried a rifle, one of them new forty-fours, and also something wrapped in paper, that he seemed particular careful about. He wore a belt around his middle, and there was a bowie knife in it, carried like I've seen scouts and engine fighters have on the frontier in the seventies. That looked queer to me, and I reckon to the rest of the crowd there. No one overlooked the big six-shooter he packed, Texas fashion. Well, I didn't have no idea this fellow was an Isbel till I heard Greaves call him that. Isbel, said Greaves, Reckon your money's counterfeit here. I can't sell you anything. Counterfeit? Not much, spoke up the young fella, and he flipped some gold twenties on the bar, where they rung like bells. Why not? Ain't this a store? I want a cinch strap. Greaves looked particular sour that morning. I'd been watching him for two days. He hadn't had much sleep, for I had my bed back of the store, and I heard men come in the night and have long confabs with him. Whatever was in the wind hadn't pleased him none, and I calculated that young Isbel wasn't a good sight for Greaves' sore eyes anyway. But he paid no more attention to Isbel, acted just as if he hadn't heard Isbel say he wanted a cinch strap. I stayed inside the store then. There was a lot of fellas I'd seen, and some I'd knowed couple of card games going on and drinking, of course. I soon gathered that the general atmosphere wasn't friendly to Jean Isbel. He's seen that quick enough, but he didn't leave. Between you and me, I sort of took a liking to him, and I sure watched him as close as I could, not seeming to, you know. Reckon they all did the same, only you couldn't see it. It got just about the same as if Isbel hadn't been in there, only you knowed it wasn't really the same. That's how I got the hunch the crowd was all sheepmen or their friends. The day before I heard a lot of talk about this young Isabel and what he'd come to the Grass Valley for and what a bad hombre he was. And when I seen him, I was bound to admit he looked his reputation. Well, pretty soon, come in two more fellas, and I knowed both of them. You know them too, I'm sorry to say. For I'm coming to facts now that will shake you. The first fella was your father's Mexican foreman, Lorenzo, and the other was Sim Bruce. I reckon Bruce wasn't drunk, but he sure had been looking on red liquor. When he seen Isbel, darn me, if he didn't swell and bustle all up like a mad old turkey gobbler. Greaves, he said, if that fella's Jean Isbel, I ain't hankering for the company you keep. And he made no bones of pointing right at Isbel. Greaves looked up dry and sour, and he bit out spiteful-like. 
Well, Sim, we ain't had a hell of a lot of choice in this here matter. That's Jean Isbel, sure enough. Maybe you can persuade him that his company and his custom ain't wanted round here. Jean Isabel sat on the counter and took it all in, but he didn't say nothing. The way he looked at Bruce was sure enough for me to see that there might be a surprise any minute. I've looked at a lot of men in my day and can sure feel events coming. Bruce got himself a stiff drink, and then he straddles over to the floor in front of Isbel. "'Ain't you Jean Isbel, son of old gas Isbel?' asked Bruce, sort of lolling back and giving a hitch to his belt. "'Yes, sir, you've identified me,' said Isbel, nice and polite. "'My name's Bruce. I'm ranging sheep hereabouts, and I have interest in Colonel Lee Jorth's business.' "'How do, Mr. Bruce,' replied Isbel, very civil and cool as you please. Bruce had an eye for the crowd that was now listening and watching. He swaggered closer to Isbel. "'We've heard you come into the Tonto Basin to run a sheepman off the range. How about that?' "'Well, you heard wrong,' said Isabel quietly. "'I came to work for my father. That work depends upon what happens.' Bruce began to get redder of face, and he shook a husky hand in front of Isbel. "'I'll tell you this here, my Nez Pierce Isbel,' and when he sort of choked for more wind, Greaves spoke up. "'Sim, I sure reckon that Nez Pierce handle will stick.' And the crowd haw-hawed. Then Bruce got going again. "'I'll tell you this here, Nez Pierce. There's been enough happen already to run you out of Arizona.' "'Well, you don't say. What, for instance?' asked Isabel, quick and sarcastic. That made Bruce bust out puffin' and spittin'. "'What, for instance, huh? Why, you darn half-breed, you get run out for making up to Ellen Jorth. That won't go in this here country. Not for any Isabel.' "'You liar,' called Isabel, and like a big cat he dropped off the counter. I heard his moccasins pat soft on the floor.' and I bet to myself that he was as dangerous as he was quick. But his voice and his looks didn't change even a little. "'I'm not a liar,' yelled Bruce. "'I'll make you eat that. I can prove what I say. You was seen with Ellen Jorth up on the rim day before yesterday. You was watched. You was with her. You made up to her. You grabbed her and kissed her. And I'm here to say, Nez Pierce, that you're a marked man on this range.' "'Who saw me?' asked Isabel, quiet and cold. "'I seen then that he turned white in the face.' "'You can't lie out of it,' hollered Bruce, waving his hands. "'We got you dead to rights. "'Lorenzo saw you, followed you, watched you.' "'Bruce pointed at the grinning greaser. "'Lorenzo is Colonel Jorth's foreman. "'He's seen you maulin' of Ellen Jorth. "'And when he tells the Colonel and Tad Jorth and Jackson Jorth, "'Ha, ha, ha!' while hell will be a cooler place for you than this here Tonto. Greaves and his gang had come around, sure tickled clean to the gizzards at this mess. I noticed, however, that they was Texans enough to keep back to one side in case this Isabel started any action. Well, Isabel took a look at Lorenzo. Then with one swift grab, he jerked the little greaser off his feet and pulled him close. Lorenzo stopped grinning. He began to look a little sick, but it was plain 
he had right on his side. "'You say you saw me?' demanded Isbel. "'Si, senor,' replied Lorenzo. "'What did you see?' "'I see senor and senorita. I hide by Manzanita. I see senorita like grande senor very much. She likes senor kiss. She—' Then Isbel hit the little greaser a backhanded crack in the mouth. Sure it was a crack. Lorenzo went over the counter backward and landed like a packed load of wood, and he didn't get up. Mr. Bruce said Isabel, and you fellows who heard that lion greaser, I did meet Ellen Jorth, and I lost my head. I kissed her. But it was an accident. I meant no insult. I apologized. I tried to explain my crazy action. That was all. That greaser lied. Ellen Jorth was kind enough to show me the trail. We talked a little. Then, I suppose, because she was young and pretty and sweet, I lost my head. She was absolutely innocent. That damn greaser told a barefaced lie when he said she liked me. The fact was, she despised me. She said so. And when she learned I was Jean Isbel, she turned her back on me and walked away. At this point of his narrative, the old man halted, as if to impress Ellen not only with what had just been told, but particularly with what was to follow. The reciting of his tale had evidently given Sprague an unconscious pleasure. He glowed. He seemed to carry the burden of a secret that he yearned to divulge. As for Ellen, she was deadlocked in breathless suspense. All her emotions waited for the end. She begged Sprague to hurry. "'Well, I wish I could skip the next chapter and have only the last to tell,' rejoined the old man, and he put a heavy, solicitous hand upon hers. Sim Bruce haw-hawed loud and loud. "'Say, Nez Pierce,' he calls out, most insolent-like. "'We are two good sheepmen here to have the wool pulled over our eyes. We sure know what you meant by Ellen Jorth.' But you wasn't smart when you told her you was Jean Isabel. Ha ha. Isabel flashed a strange, surprised look from the red-faced Bruce to Greaves and to the other men. I take it he was wondering if he heard right or if they got the same hunch that had come to him, and I reckoned he determined to make sure. Why wasn't I smart, he asked. Sure you wasn't smart, if you was aiming to be one of Ellen Jorth's lovers, said Bruce with a leer, for if you hadn't given yourself away, you could have been easy enough. There was no mistaking Bruce's meaning, and when he got it out, some of the men there laughed. Isabel kept looking from one to another of them. Then facing Greaves, he said deliberately, Greaves, this drunken Bruce is excuse enough for a showdown. I take it that you are sheepmen, and you're going on Jorth's side of the fence in the matter of this sheep-ranging. "'Well, Ness Pierce, I reckon you hit plumb center,' said Greaves dryly. He spread wide his big hands to the other men, as if to say they might as well own the jig was up. "'All right. You're Jorth's backers. Have any of you a word to say in Ellen Jorth's defense? I tell you the Mexican lied. Believe in me or not doesn't matter. But this vile mouth, Bruce— hinted against that poor girl's honor. Again some of the men laughed, but not so noisy, and there was a nervous shuffling of feet. 
Isbel looked sort of queer. His neck had a bulge round his collar, and his eyes was like black coals of fire. Greave spread his big hands again, as if to wash them of this part of the dirty argument. When it comes to any women I pass, much less play a hand for a wildcat like Jorth's girl, said Greaves, sort of cold and thick. Bruce sure ought to know her. According to talk hereabouts and what he says, Ellen Jorth has been his girl for two years. Then Isbel turned his attention to Bruce, and I, for one, began to shake in my boots. Say that to me, he called. Sure, she's my girl, and that's why I'm going to have you run off this range. Isbel jumped at Bruce. You damn drunken cur. You vile-mouthed liar. I may be an Isbel, but by God you can't slander that girl to my face. Then he moved so quick I couldn't see what he did. But I heard his fist hit Bruce. It sounded like an axe, again a beef. Bruce fell clear across the room, and by Jenny, when he landed, Isbel was there. As Bruce staggered up, all bloody-faced, bellowing and spitting out teeth, Isabel eyed Greaves's crowd and said, If any of you make a move, it'll mean gunplay. Nobody moved, that's sure. In fact, none of Greaves's outfit was packing guns, at least in sight. When Bruce got all the way up, he was a tall fella, why Isabel took a full swing at him and knocked him back across the room again the counter. You know when a fellow's hurt by the way he yells. Bruce got that second smash right on his big red nose. I never seen anyone so quick as Isbel. He vaulted over that counter just a second Bruce fell back on it, and then with Greaves' gang in front so he could catch any moves of theirs, he just slugged Bruce right and left and banged his head on the counter. Then as Bruce sunk limp and slipped down, looking like a bloody sack, Isabel let him fall to the floor. Then he vaulted back over the counter. Wiping the blood off his hands, he throwed his kerchief down in Bruce's face. Bruce wasn't dead or bad hurt. He'd just been beaten bad. He was moaning and slobbering. Isabel kicked him, not hard, but just sort of disgustful. Then he faced that crowd. Greaves, that's what I think of your sim, Bruce. Tell him next time he sees me to run or pull a gun. And then Isbel grabbed his rifle and package off the counter and went out. He didn't even look back. I seen him mount his horse and ride away. Now, girl, what have you to say? Ellen could only say goodbye, and the word was so low as to be almost inaudible. She ran to her burrow. She could not see very clearly through tear-blurred eyes, and her shaking fingers were all thumbs. It seemed she had to rush away, somewhere, anywhere, not to get away from old John Sprague, but from herself, this palpitating, bursting self whose feet stumbled down the trail. All, all seemed ended for her. That interminable story, it had taken so long, and every minute of it she had been helplessly torn asunder by feelings she had never known she possessed. This Ellen Jorth was an unknown creature. She sobbed now as she dragged the burrow down the canyon trail. She sat only to rise. She hurried only to stop. Driven, pursued, barred, 
She had no way to escape the flaying thoughts, no time or will to repudiate them. The death of her girlhood, the rendering aside of a veil of maiden mystery, only vaguely instinctively guessed, the barren, sordid truth of her life as seen by her enlightened eyes, the bitter realization of the vileness of men of her clan, in contrast to the manliness and chivalry of an enemy, the hard facts of unalterable repute as created by slander and fostered by low minds, all these were forces in a cataclysm that had suddenly caught her heart and whirled her through changes immense and agonizing, to bring her face to face with reality, to force upon her suspicion and doubt of all she had trusted, to warn her of the dark, impending horror of a tragic, bloody feud, and lastly, to teach her the supreme truth at once so glorious and so terrible that she could not escape the doom of womanhood. About noon that day, Ellen Jorth arrived at the knoll, which was the location of her father's ranch. Three canyons met there to form a large one. The knoll was a symmetrical hill situated at the mouth of the three canyons. It was covered with brush and cedars, and here and there lichened rocks showing above the bleached grass. Below the knoll was a wide, grassy flat or meadow, through which a willow-bordered stream cut its rugged boulder-strewn bed. Water flowed abundantly at this season, and the deep washes leading down from the slopes attested to the fact of cloudbursts and heavy storms. This meadow valley was dotted with horses and cattle, and meandered away between the timbered slopes to lose itself in a green curve. A singular feature of this canyon was that a heavy growth of spruce trees covered the slope facing northwest, and the opposite slope, exposed to the sun and therefore less snowbound in winter, held a sparse growth of yellow pines. The ranch house of Colonel Jorth stood round the rough corner of the largest of the three canyons, and rather well hidden. It did not obtrude its rude and broken-down log cabins, its squalid surroundings, its black mud holes of corrals upon the beautiful and serene Meadow Valley. Ellen Jorth approached her home slowly, with dragging, reluctant steps, and never before in the three unhappy years of her existence there had the ranch seemed so bare, so uncared for, so repugnant to her. As she had seen herself with clarified eyes, so now she saw her home. The cabin that Ellen lived in with her father was a single-room structure with one door and no windows. It was about twenty feet square. The huge, ragged stone chimney had been built on the outside, with the wide-open fireplace set inside the logs. Smoke was rising from the chimney. As Ellen halted at the door and began unpacking her burrow, she heard the loud, lazy laughter of men. An adjoining log cabin had been built in two sections, with a wide-roofed hall or space between them. The door in each cabin faced the other, and there was a tall man standing in one. Ellen recognized Daggs, a neighbor sheepman, who evidently spent more time with her father than at his own home, wherever that was. Ellen had never seen it. She heard this man draw, "'Jorth, here's your kid come home.' Ellen carried her bed inside the cabin and unrolled it upon a couch built of boughs in the far corner. 
She had forgotten Jean Isabel's package, and now it fell out under her sight. Quickly she covered it. A Mexican woman, relative of Antonio, and the only servant about the place, was squatting Indian fashion before the fireplace, stirring a pot of beans. She and Ellen did not get along well together, and few words ever passed between them. Ellen had a canvas curtain stretched upon a wire across the small triangular corner, and this afforded her a little privacy. Her possessions were limited in number. The crude square table she had constructed herself. Upon it was a little old-fashioned walnut-framed mirror, a brush and comb, and a dilapidated ebony cabinet which contained odds and ends, the sight of which always brought a smile of derisive self-pity to her lips. Under the table stood an old leather trunk. It had come with her from Texas and contained clothing and belongings of her mother's. Above the couch on pegs hung her scant wardrobe. A tiny shelf held several worn-out books. When her father slept indoors, which was seldom except in winter, he occupied a couch in the opposite corner. A rude cupboard had been built against the logs next to the fireplace. It contained supplies and utensils. Toward the center, somewhat closer to the door, stood a crude table and two benches. The cabin was dark and smelled of smoke, of the stale odors of past cooked meals, of the mustiness of dry, rotting timber. Streaks of light showed through the roof where the rough-hewn shingles had split or weathered. A strip of bacon hung upon one side of the cupboard, and upon the other a haunch of venison. Ellen detested the Mexican woman because she was dirty. The inside of the cabin presented the same unkept appearance usual to it after Ellen had been away for a few days. Whatever Ellen had lost during the retrogression of the Jorths, she had kept her habit of cleanliness, and straight away upon her return she set to work. The Mexican woman sullenly slouched away to her own quarters outside, and Ellen was left to the satisfaction of labor. Her mind was as busy as her hands. As she cleaned and swept and dusted, she heard from time to time the voices of men, the clip-clop of shod horses, the bellow of cattle, and a considerable time elapsed before she was disturbed. A tall shadow darkened the doorway. "'Howdy, little one,' said a lazy, drawing voice. "'So y'all got home.' Ellen looked up. A superbly built man leaned against the doorpost. Like most Texans, he was light-haired and light-eyed. His face was lined and hard. His long, sandy mustache hid his mouth and drooped with a curl. Spurred, booted, belted, packing a heavy gun low down on his hip, he gave Ellen an entirely new impression. Indeed, she was seeing everything strangely. "'Hello, Dags,' replied Ellen. "'Where's my dad?' "'He's playing cards with Jackson and Coulter. Sure playing bad, too, and it's gone to his head.' "'Gambling?' queried Ellen. "'My child, when did Colonel Jorth ever play for fun?' said Dags, with a lazy laugh. "'There's a stack of gold on the table. Reckon your Uncle Jackson will win it. Coulter's sure out of luck.' Dags stepped inside. He was graceful and slow. His long spurs clinked. 
he laid a rather compelling hand on Ellen's shoulder. "'Here, my girl, give us a kiss,' he said. "'Dags, I'm not your girl,' replied Ellen, as she slipped out from under his hand. Then Dags put his arm round her, not with violence or rudeness, but with an indolent, affectionate assurance, at once bold and self-contained. Ellen, however, had to exert herself to get free of him, and when she had placed the table between them, she looked him square in the eyes. "'Dags, you keep your paws off me,' she said. "'Aw, oh, now, Ellen, I ain't no bear,' he remonstrated. "'What's the matter, kid?' "'I'm not a kid, and there's nothing the matter. You're to keep your hands to yourself, that's all.' He tried to reach her across the table, and his movements were lazy and slow, like his smile. His tone was coaxing. "'My dear, sure you sat on my knee just the other day now, didn't you?' Ellen felt the blood sting her cheeks. "'I was a child,' she returned. "'Well, listen to this here grown-up young woman, all in a few days. Don't be in a temper, Ellen. Come, give us a kiss.' She deliberately gazed into his eyes, like the eyes of an eagle, they were clear and hard, just now warmed by the dalliance of the moment. But there was no light, no intelligence in them to prove he understood her. The instant separated Ellen immeasurably from him and from all his ilk. Dags, I was a child, she said. I was lonely, hungry for affection. I was innocent. Then I was careless, too, and thoughtless when I should have known better. But I hardly understood you men. I put such thoughts out of my mind. I know now, know what you mean, what you have made people believe I am. Ah, sure, I got your hunch, he returned, with a change of tone. But I asked you to marry me. Yes, you did. The first day you got here to my dad's house. And you asked me to marry you, after you found you couldn't have your way with me. To you, the one didn't mean any more than the other. "'Sure I did. More than Sim, Bruce, and Coulter,' he retorted. "'They never asked you to marry.' "'No, they didn't. And if I could respect them at all, I'd do it, because they didn't ask me.' "'Well, I'll be doggone,' ejaculated Daggs thoughtfully, as he stroked his long mustache. "'I'll say to them what I've said to you,' went on Ellen. "'I'll tell Dad to make you let me alone. I wouldn't marry one of you loafers to save my life.' I've my suspicions about you. You're a bad lot. Dags changed subtly. The whole indolent nonchalance of the man vanished in an instant. Well, Miss Jorth, I reckon you mean we're a bad lot of sheepmen, he queried, in the cool, easy speech of a Texan. No, flashed Ellen. Sure I don't say sheepmen. I say you're a bad lot. Oh, the hell you say, Dags spoke as he might have spoken to a man. Then, turning swiftly on his heel, he left her. Outside he encountered Ellen's father. She heard Dag speak. Lee, you little wildcat is sure here, and take my hunch. Somebody has been talking to her. Who has? asked her father in his husky voice. Ellen knew at once that he had been drinking. Lord only knows, replied Daggs, but sure it wasn't any friends of ours. "'We can't stop people's tongues,' said Jorth resignedly. "'Well, I ain't so sure,' continued Daggs with his slow, cool laugh. 
Reckon I never yet heard any dead men's tongue wag. End of chapter 5, part 1